So it's been a very productive time. All right, I've been talking about how to not limit God. And we talked from Psalm 78, 41 about how that we can limit God. I talked about that God doesn't just sovereignly control everything. We have a part to play in what God does. I talked about how that if you don't know what God's will for your life is, that's certainly going to limit what God can do. It doesn't happen accidentally. You have to pursue the things of God. We talked about how fear limits God. We talked about fear of people, a fear of man, fear of persecution, fear of success. Uh, this morning I was talking about how unbelief limits God. And uh, shared some things about faith that's just kind of a different way of looking at it. And I tell you, those things that I was sharing this morning are the kind of things that you need to go back over and over and over. Uh, You didn't get all of that. I can promise you, you didn't get it. Amen. (laughs) This lady who said that she was healed in Albuquerque, didn't you say that that was the same message that she heard two or three years ago that caused her to be able to believe and receive her healing of cancer? Uh, I tell you, there was a lot in what I said this morning, and we could just keep amplifying on all of these things, but uh, tonight's my last night. So there's a couple of things I want to talk about. One of them, let's turn over to uh, Isaiah chapter 1, and I'm just going to pick a scripture out of this chapter that makes a point. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And then verse 19, If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. And one of the points I want to make, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because it ought to be obvious, and I guess it is, but most people don't do this very well, and that is that you just have to be obedient to what God is telling you, or you can limit what He's going to do in your life. You've got to follow through. The Lord is going to ask you to do things, and there will be steps and stages in what God leads you to do. He won't take you from where you are into the perfect fulfillment of His will all in one step. There will be steps and stages, and a lot of that is for your benefit. God doesn't want to give you the whole plan, because if you didn't obey... And if you didn't follow through, that would just make you accountable for the whole thing. Out of mercy, God just leads you one step at a time and only gives it to you as you're able to bear it. He told the children of Israel, he says, I'm not going to give you the whole land all at one time. I'm going to give it to you little by little, lest the beast of the field multiply and the crops go, all of the fields go fallow and stuff. He says, I'm going to let you occupy the land as you're able to... um, possess it and, and uh, occupy it. And it's the same thing in the spiritual realm. God is going to show you things step by step and there's going to be a lot of steps of obedience in you following the Lord. And if you don't do what God told you to do, it's going to stop His perfect will from coming to pass. It's not because God stops and says, I won't bless you because you aren't worthy. None of us are worthy. None of us deserve anything. But it does take cooperation on our part. Uh, let, let me use this passage out of 1 Samuel chapter 13 to illustrate this, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be moving on beyond this because, again, this ought to be obvious. But 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul had been appointed the king of Israel, 
And he started out and he won this great battle over Nahash, the uh, king of the Ammonites, I think it was. And he was established as king. And then it says in 1 Samuel chapter 13, in verse 1, it says, Saul reigned one year and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan, that's his son, in Gibeah of Benjamin, and the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And so Saul was now established as king. He had 3,000 people divide, 2,000 with him, 1,000 with his son. And um, Jonathan went out and smote some of the Philistines. Because of this, the Philistines amassed their people together and they came down And it said in verse 5 that the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and, and camped against them. And because of this, the Israelites were in big trouble. So Samuel, the prophet, the one who had anointed Saul to be king and, and, and who was still basically mentoring Saul and Uh, you know, had authority and control over him. He told Saul to wait seven days and he would come and offer a sacrifice uh, before the Lord and entreat the Lord's favor on them and then they'd go out to battle. Well, they waited the seven days and Samuel was late in coming. He didn't come in the days appointed. He was late getting there. And so Saul said this in verse 9. He said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me and that thou camest not within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash Therefore said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. You know, a lot of people read that and think, well, that's not so bad. He was in a bad situation, and he just wanted to make sure that he had entreated the Lord. And and they excuse things, and they explain it away. Most people have situational ethics. It just depends on what the situation is like. They don't intend to do anything wrong, but you know what? If you're in a situation where you're under pressure and if things happen, you, it, just, it just happened. I, you know, that's the way most people think. But there are absolutes, and one of the absolutes is that if you are going to take the limits off of God and if you're going to see God's best come to pass, you need to just get to a place to where there's only one God and you are not Him. You do not have the freedom to pick and choose and decide, I'm going to do this. You know, I've I've used this example often, but people talk about coming to our Bible college and they always tell me, I, I remember this one guy came in and he says, I know God spoke to me. God told me to come to Karis Bible College, but he was a 19 year old boy and he says, my parents think that you're a cult. They are against everything. So they took me to the pastor of the church. The pastor of the church says, you're a cult. They told me that this is wrong. They're telling me I can't do this. He says, I'm going to lose my good paying job. It's going to cost me money. He says all of these things. And he just was so perplexed. He was nearly in tears. And he says, what should I do? And I said, you lost me the moment you said God told you. 
And he says, what do you mean? I said, look, if God told you who cares what anybody else got to say, who cares what the pastor has to say, your parents have to say, who cares about if you lose your job, who cares about if you lose money? Man, if God Almighty, who is running a universe, has bound to God, have other things that are important, takes the time out to speak to you and tell you something, and then you're going to debate whether or not you do it? I don't even compute that. It doesn't even dawn on me. Man, if I know that God spoke something to me, I'm going to do it. Now, there may be some wisdom about when to do it, how to do it, or something, but I will do it. I'll do it if it costs me my life. I'll do it if it costs me whatever. If it hairlips every devil in hell, I'm going to do it. Amen. Amen. I know some of you think, man, you can't be like that. That's the way you got to be. There are absolutes. If God tells you something, just follow it. And there no circumstance can pressure me into doing something different. I'm going to do what God said. God told Saul that you are not qualified to offer a sacrifice. Only priests could do that. And he let circumstances compel him to change. And as soon as he did it, Samuel showed up. And boy, Samuel was upset. In verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, look at this, Thou hast done foolishly, for thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now will the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Do you understand what this is saying? We sing about David and talk about the sure mercies of David and Jesus being the son of David. And all of these things. And most of us can't even relate, if you know anything about the Bible, to David not being the king who is a man after God's own heart and all of these things. And yet Samuel is saying on the inspiration of the Lord that if you would have obeyed God today, he would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. There never would have been a David. David wasn't God's first choice. David was an afterthought. David was plan B. Plan A was Saul. Saul was in training. If he would have obeyed God, if he would have just cooled his jets another hour and have waited on Samuel to show up and have just done what was right, I don't care how much pressure he's under, doesn't matter if you're fighting an enemy, it doesn't matter what the justification is, just do what God told you to do. If it kills you, do it. If he would have done that, we'd have been talking about the sure mercies of Saul. We'd have been singing about Saul and his son Jonathan. Jonathan is one of the greatest characters in the Bible. In chapter 14, he goes out and destroys all of the Philistines. He was a very godly man and God had him groomed. His father's disobedience cost him the kingdom, cost him his life. You need to obey God. I just don't know how to say it any stronger than that. You got to obey God. I just don't relate to people who God speaks to them and they they debate whether they're going to do it or not. That's wrong. I don't understand what the deal is. You know, we've got this man who runs our he's the administrator of our Bible college right now, but when we first started talking to him, he was a graduate of our Bible school and we were going to begin night school. In night school, we weren't even sure that anybody was going to show up when we started night school. So it was just a part-time job. 
and it didn't deserve a full-time pay. So we were going to give him a part-time job. We mentioned it to him. We offered this job to him. But he has, what, five kids, I think it is. And he was making a good salary. And he was living in a nice house and all of these things. And so it took a lot of money for him to be able to live. And what we were offering him was about half of what he needed. And so he was out at my house one day and we were doing something and he was talking to me and he says, man, I know this is God. I have felt like we're supposed to go into the ministry. We love this ministry. We want to be a part of it. We feel like this is what God wants us to do, but... And then he told me about his family and how much money it takes. And he started naming this and naming this and naming this. And what are we going to do about this? And what about this? And I just don't know if I should do this or not. And he, he spent five or ten minutes telling me all of these things. And then he says, what do you think I should do? And I said, you lost me the moment you said this is what God told you to do. And he says, but what about... I said, I don't have an answer to these things. But if God told you to do this, you just do it. Well, what about the house I'm going to live in? I said, if you have to, go live in a tent. I know some of you think, man... See, the problem is you've you got to put God first. You've got to do what God says. So anyway, I just told him, I said, look, I haven't got an answer to your questions. I don't know how things will work out. But if God told you to do it, then do it. And he'll take care of it. So he went ahead and accepted the job. That was like in May or in June. And of course, school wasn't going to start up until August. And did you know that in between that time, the director of our Bible college quit. Wendell became the director of the Bible college. And all of a sudden we had need of an administrator. And instead of him being the night school guy, he became the administrator over the school. We doubled the salary because he was full time and basically paid him nearly dollar for dollar what he was getting anyway. And everything worked out. But did you know if he hadn't have accepted that job, he never even had to take the lower pay. When he came on uh, to work, he was getting the full pay. But if he hadn't have accepted that position, we never would have promoted him and have had him for the other position. You've got to obey God. You've got to do what God tells you to do. And sometimes it's going to look like what God is leading you to do isn't wise, but if you know it's God, you've just got to get to a place to where you do what God tells you to do. Run up a white flag. Surrender. You aren't God. You shouldn't have the right to sit here and say, well, God, I know you want me to do this, but I I just am not sure I'm willing to do this. Something is seriously wrong with you. I just don't understand that. It's not negotiable. Now, I've done some dumb things because I I wasn't listening to God or something, but once I know it's God, I can't ever remember God telling me to do something and me arguing with Him whether I'll do it or not. That just doesn't make sense. Quiet in here. <laughs> I, would, I would dare to say that a large number of people right here in this room, that you don't think that way. God could speak to you in an audible voice and it would depend whether the money was there to go ahead and do it and whether it was, you know, whether it's something you wanted to do and whether it's the climate you wanted to go to or whatever else. And there's just a million things that could override the voice of God. I'm telling you, you're limiting God if you do that. You need to get to a place to where there's only one God, you aren't Him. And if God tells you to do something, just obey. 
if you be willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. If you aren't, you won't. That's that simple. And I could use a million examples. We could take Elijah. He had to go and do what God told him to do. Every person you can go through, and once you get this concept, just look at the lives of the people who God used, and they were successful, and they took the limits off, and they saw the glory of God revealed in their life. And I guarantee you, every one of them, sometime or another, had to do something that goes against their own thinking, their natural reasoning, and they just had to obey God. That's going to be an important part of you taking the limits off of God. Another thing I want to talk about, this is what I want to major on tonight, is that for you to take the limits off of God, you've got to start using your imagination. And you know, that doesn't sound very spiritual to a lot of people. But your imagination is a super important part of the way that God made you. And you cannot do anything outwardly that you haven't already seen and imagined on the inside. This is just the way that God made you. As a matter of fact, if you took the word imagination, there's 35 times that the Old Testament uses the word, yes. I guess you'd pronounce it yester, Y-E-S-T-E-R. It's the word that is translated imagination 35 times in the Old Testament. And that word means a form or figuratively, conception. The word imagination means conception is what that word means. And if you stop and think about it, and I'm going to have to condense a lot tonight, so I'm just going to say a lot of things. You may need to go study this out on your own to get it firmly established in Scripture. But your imagination is where you conceive things. Just like a baby has to be conceived. A stork doesn't bring babies. You know, I'm not going to take time to explain all of that here tonight. I'm going to take it for granted that most of you already know this. But a stork doesn't bring babies. You have to conceive a baby. There was only one virgin birth and you aren't going to be the second. You have to conceive a baby. And if a person wanted to have a child without conceiving it. Let's just say that somebody come up and asks for prayer and says, would you please pray that I get pregnant? I've, I've learned to ask people, are you married? Because I've had single people come up and ask me to pray that they could have a baby and I've, I'm not going to be a part of that, amen. So now I ask people, I said, are you married? Because, and then after I pray for them, I prayed for a couple that, that today about having children. They wanted twins. And uh, you know what? Now that I've prayed for them, that's not all that there is. You don't have children by prayer. They got a part to play in this thing, amen. And they got to go act on the word. They got to be obedient. And you aren't going to just pray and have a child. There are things that you have to do and you have to conceive that child. Now all of us understand that. And if a woman was wanting children and yet never had a physical relationship with a man and yet she was so upset about it, I just can't understand why I'm not having children. I pray every day. That's not all there is to it. You have to conceive that child. And you have to conceive a miracle. You have to conceive the things of God. And the scripture, that word, the very word imagination means conception. Your imagination is your spiritual womb. 
It's where you conceive things. And brothers and sisters, most Christians do not use their imagination in a godly way. We all have an imagination and we use it constantly. But most Christians think that this is kind of weird and you, you shouldn't be just thinking and imagining things. You know, let's deal in reality. You, you can't do anything without your imagination. Your imagination defined is just your ability to see something with your heart that you can't see with your eyes. That's all an imagination is. When you make a grocery list, did you know you use your imagination? You go up and down the aisles of that store because you're familiar with it, you've seen it. And in your memory, you go over and you go look around all of the fruit things and think, I need this and this and this. And what you're doing, you're using your imagination. If you give me directions, if I was to say, you know, which uh, room are you staying in here at the Biltmore? And if you were to tell me, i say, well, where is that? You'd say, well, you go out here and you go by the Aztec room, you go into the lobby, you go out here, do you know where the fire pits are? And you'd, you know what you're doing? You're seeing things and you're telling me you go to, uh, you turn right here and you do this and you go to this swimming pool or whatever. You aren't seeing those things with your physical eye. You're using your memory. You remember things by imagination. You know, if I was to ask you, what was your home like? that you grew up in. Some of you grew up in a lot of different homes. You grew up in different places, and so maybe you don't have a dominant home that you're focused on. But let's say that you grew up in the same home from the time you were a little kid until you left, got married and left. I can guarantee you, you know what you do? You could go back and you could describe that house to me. You could tell me how many bedrooms, and some of you may not have thought about it in many years, and you'd have to sit and think, and you'd, what you'd do, you'd look at it. And say, well, let's see, there was one, two, three bedrooms and we had this. And, you know, we, I remember in our house, of course, we didn't have cell phones and stuff. And we had one phone that was in the hall on this little thing that was built into the wall. And, that's, and you know, I can describe it to you. I can tell you exactly where it was. I can see it. You know what I'm doing? I'm using my imagination. Your imagination is just your ability to see something. You can't remember anything without imagination. You can't think without an imagination. If I say apple, you don't see A-P-P-L-E. What you see is an apple. And some of you may see a red apple. Some of you might see a green apple. I could use words to change your picture. I could say a red apple and immediately you'd have to change the image that you're looking at. I could say dog and you don't see D-O-G. You picture... A dog, that's your imagination. You think in pictures. And many of you, probably most of you, would picture a dog that you've had in the past or that you have now. You, some of you will picture a little poodle or a chihuahua. Some of you may picture a Rottweiler. All kinds of different images. And so what I can do is use my words and I can say a big dog, big black dog, big black mean dog. <laughs> and you know what? As I keep describing things... All of our pictures start getting closer. That's your imagination. This is why that when they give directions on something, how to assemble it, they'll have some words over here, but then they'll have figure one. They'll have a picture. A picture is worth a thousand words. And of course, being a man, I never read the print. I just look at the pictures. <laughs> Amen. 
and I assemble things based on the pictures. And you know what? You think in pictures. You can't understand anything that you can't picture. As a matter of fact, look over in Ephesians chapter 4. I mentioned earlier that I spent a year meditating on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, it says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. Man, that is one awesome statement. That's exactly what I was preaching this morning. I hadn't got time to go into all of that, but that's exactly what I was talking about. Don't walk in the vanity of your mind. Just control by what you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. Start living out of your heart, walking by faith. And in verse 18, it says, If you are walking like a Gentile, an unsaved person walks in the vanity of their mind, it says in verse 18, Having the understanding darkened. Did you know that the word understanding here is the Greek word dianoia? Dia means uh, a channel or through, and noia is talking about your mind. It's talking about the way you think, and specifically the definition of it is deep thought. And this exact same Greek word, dianoia, was translated imagination in Luke chapter 1, verse 51, where uh, John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, was prophesying and he says, Thank you, Lord, for raising up salvation and you have scattered the proud in the imagination of their own hearts. That's the exact same word was translated understanding. And this is saying that you're understanding. You can't understand without an imagination. If you can't picture something, if you don't take words and meditate on it until those words paint a picture, then you can't retain it. And this is where a lot of Christians are missing it. They have pieces of information like, I'm more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. This is the victory that overcomes the world. Thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph. They have that information. They've heard those words And if you were to ask them, are you a winner? Oh yeah, I'm a winner. But you know what? They haven't thought on it and meditated to the point that their imagination forms a picture of them being a winner. I don't know if you're getting what I'm saying. But there's a lot of people that have this piece of information and they'll say, oh, by his stripes I'm healed. But they've never seen themselves healed. And see, they haven't got, they just got information, but not understanding. Their understanding hasn't come alive. I've told a number of people this week that one of the problems is when you've been sick a long time, you see yourself sick. You think sick. You dream sick. You don't dream like normal people that go out and have a vacation and do something fun and find yourself running or something. You're sick in your dreams. You see yourself sick. You think sick. And the scripture says, Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. If you see yourself sick, you're going to be sick. It doesn't matter how many scriptures you know, how much information you have, You could have people lay hands on you until they rub all the hair off the top of your head and you're going to be sick as long as you see yourself sick. But what you got to do is take the Word of God 
and meditate on it. Not just take the information and say, oh yeah, by his stripes I'm healed. I've heard that. Now I've got it. No, you need to take that and think until you see yourself healed. You know, there was a tape that I listened to and a man, a a woman was giving, our preacher was giving this story about a woman, a pastor's wife who had real poor eyesight. She was nearly blind, legally blind, and her glasses were like Coke bottles. They were so thick, the bottom of a Coke bottle. And uh, there was a healing evangelist coming to their church and she knew that he was going to want to pray for her, but she didn't want him to pray for her because she had prayed before and had other people pray for her and she had been disappointed. She didn't want to be disappointed again. So she tried to avoid this guy, but he eventually cornered her and he says, I'm going to pray for you. And he made her take her glasses off and he prayed for her, laid his hands on her and prayed for her. And then he says, now can you see? So she started to open her eyes and when she started to open her eyes, he said, shut your eyes. And she shut her eyes real quick and thought, what's he doing? You know, he asked me if I could see. And so she had her eyes shut and he says, now, can you see? So she started to open her eyes again. And he said, shut your eyes. And she shut her eyes. And she was wondering, well, what, how am I going to tell if I can see if I don't open my eyes? And the third time he said, now, can you see? And she started to open her eyes And he said, I didn't tell you to open your eyes. You've got to see yourself seeing on the inside before you see with your physical eyes. And finally, she understood that she had to see herself healed. She saw herself sick. She was praying and asking for healing, but she didn't see herself well. And so she kept her eyes closed and she prayed in tongues and just built herself up. And after a few minutes, she told him, she says, I've got it. I see myself seeing. And he said, now open your eyes. And she opened her eyes and she could see. You know what? We are very often too quick to just ask God for something and pray for something, but we don't see it. We haven't engaged our imagination and we're premature. I told one woman this week that came up to me on Thursday and she had terminal cancer and it was given up and there's no hope and this is like her last chance. And she was not only sick in her body, she was sick in her mind. She was so depressed, so discouraged, so fearful by this. I told her, I said, you come up and let our prayer ministers pray with you during the week. But I said, I want to wait and pray with you on uh, Saturday And I didn't explain all this. I didn't have time. But what I was doing, she needed to get built up in faith. She needed to have some faith. She needed to see herself healed. And anyway, she came up today and I prayed with her. And man, she was a different woman from what she was on Thursday night. She's been receiving the word. She had already seen partial manifestation of her healing. She's doing much better. The pain had left. And you know what? Now she could see herself well. And so I agreed with her today. And I guarantee you, we got a lot better results praying that way than me just praying with her when she's so depressed and discouraged and fearful. You've got to see things on the inside before you see them on the outside. You have to conceive it. Your imagination is your spiritual womb. And when it comes to taking the limits off of God... You've got to take the things that God has spoken to you in the scriptures and meditate on it until you can see what God has said about you coming to pass. You know, I actually 
don't have the words to describe what I'm trying to explain to you. This is hard for me to explain because it's an intangible. But this is something I operate in. When the Lord told me about our building, you know, we moved from 14,600 square feet into a 110,000 square foot building. Huge leap of faith. And then we had to build that out and it was going to be a $3.2 million expense and the Lord told me not to take out a loan that my partners were the bank. At the rate we had been saving money, it could have taken me a hundred years to pay for that. Plus, we had doubled our expenses on television and staff and things like that. So there was just no way in the natural this was going to work. And yet I committed myself. I said, if somebody comes and offers me all of the money I need this week, I'm not going to take it. God told me that my partners are our bank and they're going to supply our need. And you know what? Sure enough, somebody came and offered me $4 million loan that very week, a day or two after I made that decision and I turned it down. And so here we were with this huge project in front of us. And you know what? I had to conceive it in my imagination. And again, I fail in words how to explain this. You know, here's, here's my staff and we were needing to say something, we were needing to do something and I kind of just didn't do anything for a few weeks or a month or two. You know why? Because I was conceiving it. I didn't know how God wanted me to raise the money. I didn't know how it was going to happen. I knew God was going to do it. I knew He was going to use people. But I felt like if I would have written the letter and have just thrown that need out there and hadn't seen in my heart how God wanted me to say it, how He wanted me to present it, what He wanted me to do, it wouldn't have worked. I think this is what a lot of people do. They do things premature. They haven't conceived it. You know, when you conceive a child, you don't give birth the day that you conceive. It takes time for you to give birth and for that to come to term. And it's the same thing in the spiritual realm. You have to conceive something. It takes time to grow and develop. And I remember waiting for weeks or a month or two before God clearly spoke to me and told me what to say. We put out a letter and in 14 months we had that $3.2 million. We moved in debt free. It was all done. And during that period of time, you know what part of the process was? We had this huge warehouse that was empty and I designed the way it was going to be laid out. And then we had our builder go put Uh, duct tape on the floor where every wall, wherever door was, wherever window was, everything. We had the whole thing laid out in duct tape on the floor. And I spent hundreds of hours, I don't know how much, but I would walk four and five hours at a time through that building praying. And I never would step over that duct tape. I'd always walk around and open the door. There was nothing there. Nothing there but duct tape, but I'd pray and I'd walk and I'd open that door and I'd walk in and I'd look at that room. I know some of you think I'm weird, but I think you're weird. (laughs) I'm telling you, this is what I did. I would walk and I would walk into a room. There was nothing but duct tape on the floor and I'd look at that room and I'd imagine what it was going to be like and I'd see people in it. We had a platform similar to this and I actually put... Uh, five-gallon buckets on the floor and, and plywood across it where the stage was going to be. And I stood on that stage and I preached to people. I preached messages and I saw people being healed and delivered and set free. 
This is confirming some of y'all's suspicions about me. And I'm telling you, you know why I was doing that? Because I had to see that building completed on the inside before I would see it completed on the outside. And I did that and I began to start seeing things and I, I just can't explain it to you, but I'm telling you, I got pregnant. I conceived something and other people were going and they'd look at that and here was a trench dug. That's all we had the money to do and it looked like it was never going to be finished. But you know what? I could see it finished. I saw it. I saw myself preaching. I saw things happening. And when we actually moved into the facility and dedicated it, a lot of our students were just so excited. We came from this little tiny place where we had to have porta potties outside in the winter in Colorado because we didn't have any room. And we came from that into this place that I put in 60 toilets. Man, we got enough toilets. We've never had a woman have to stand in line there ever. Amen. We came from this situation into this abundance and into all of these things. And you know what? Some of our students were just jumping and shouting and all oh, this is awesome. And everybody was so excited because now they saw what God had done. And I actually had some students come up and say, aren't you excited? Because I was just like this. You know what? I'm always like this. <laughs> We went to Disney World and they take those pictures, you know, and then they sell you the pictures and, and we were on the roller coasters and things were coming out. And you know what? They could have taken a picture of me just like this and have photoshopped it and there we are. Hey. I can't believe you did that. Oh man She used to work for us (laughs) I have been called Android Womack that's what they call me around the office. But anyway, this guy came up and I, I wasn't excited. And he says, aren't you excited? And I said, yeah, I'm excited. But you know what? I was excited when I was walking and praying and seeing these things. To me, that was exciting. And when we actually physically could see it with our eyes, that to me was like, well, I already knew this. I've already seen it. Let's go on to something else. You know what gets me excited is when everything is in the spiritual realm, in the unseen realm, and I can see it by faith. That's what cranks me up and gets my juices flowing. Once I see something, it's like, oh yeah, well, I'd already seen this. No big deal. You know, when we saw our son raised from the dead, I rejoiced on the way into town. And when I got there and saw that he was raised from the dead, I was just like this. Because I'd already done my rejoicing. I'd already seen it. I'm telling you that this is how faith works. Matter of fact, here's another piece of information about your imagination. I I studied the word imagination all throughout Scripture. And did you know that there's only one time that the word imagination is used positively in all of the Scripture? There's 35 Hebrew words 
where imagination or imaginations is used. And in the New Testament, I forget how many times it's used. But out of all of those times, scores of times, there's only one use of the word imagination in a positive way. And that's in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, I believe it's verse 18, where David was praying and said, Oh Lord, keep this forever in the thoughts of the imagination of your people and prepare their heart unto you. And what he was talking about, they gave this offer and it was spontaneous. Like five billion dollars worth of gold and silver. People just began to start giving towards the temple. And David started praying a prayer and saying, God, this is amazing. Who are we to do this? We used to be exiles. We were slaves in Egypt and here we are now with this abundance. And yet all we've done is give you what was already yours. And he is just so amazed. He says, God, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the people. You know what he's talking about? Help them to remember this. In, make an indelible picture. And that's the only time that the word imagination is used positively. Every other time, was it First Chronicles 29, 18? Every other time that the word imagination is used in the Bible, it's spoken of negatively. It says that God, the, the imagination of their heart was only evil continually. God is going to scatter them in the imagination of their hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 through 5 says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down of imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And so I was seeing that your imagination is where you conceive things. You, can't, you have to see it on the inside before you see it on the outside. I saw this in Scripture, but I couldn't understand why, if the imagination is powerful like this, why it wasn't used in a positive sense. Why it was only spoken of negatively. Like over in Genesis chapter 6, I believe it is, the Lord came down to see the Tower of Babel. No, that's not Genesis 6. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, somewhere around there. It says, now nothing that they have imagined will be restrained unto them. And so the Lord divided the tongues to limit our imagination, our ability to communicate and spark imagination in other people. He had to do that to divide it because it actually threatened his plans for mankind. He says, nothing they've imagined will be impossible unto them. If you can imagine it, you can do it. But why wasn't there positive use of it? And you know what the Lord spoke to him? Look over in uh, Romans chapter 8 at this verse. In Romans chapter 8 verse 24 it says, For we are saved by hope, that hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, what that he hath hoped for. But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. If you were here this morning when I was talking out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul said, we, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Paul was talking about seeing something that you can't see. How can you see something that you can't see? It's through your imagination. It's with your heart. And when this is talking about hope, it says, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, 
then do we with patience wait for it. You know what the Lord spoke to me? Hope is a positive imagination. The word imagination is used primarily to describe the negative use of your ability to picture and see something and conceive it. When it's used in a positive way, the Bible is always speaking of it as hope. Hope is something that is not present tense. As a matter of fact, if you look the word imagination up in the dictionary, the dictionary will define imagination as your ability to see something not present or real. That's what the dictionary defines imagination as. That's exactly what hope is. Hope is the ability to see something that, you, that isn't real right now. It's not a reality right now. It's off in the future. That's what this is talking about. So I believe that every time that the Bible speaks of hope, it's actually talking about your imagination, your ability to picture and see something with your heart that you can't see with your eyes. You can't see it now, so it's not what you'd call reality. It's in an unseen realm. It's hope. It's imagination. And the scripture says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. So faith gives substance to things that you have hoped for or have imagined. If there is no imagination, faith can't bring it to pass. Faith can only produce reality to something that you have already conceived in your imagination and you have this vision of it. Where there is no vision, the people perish. I believe that's Proverbs chapter 29, verse 29 or 25 or 26 or 7. It's there someplace. (laughs) Where there is no vision, the people perish. If you can't see it, then you can't get it. And I tell you, most Christians, I don't believe, have understood this. And so because of it, they take little truths like, by his stripes I'm healed. And they say, oh, I've got it, I'm healed. But they don't ever meditate on that. You have to let it sink down into your deep thought. That's what this word, understanding, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, the word deanoia, it means deep thought. You have to not just take a shallow thought, but you have to let those things become so real that it sinks down and it changes the way you see things. It affects your image. You know, every one of you have an image of who you are. You see yourself a certain way. And I'm not talking about your physical body, whether you're male or female, what color your hair is, whether your hair is long or short or whatever. I'm talking about you see yourself in what you can do. You see yourself as a winner or a loser. You have a positive or a negative image. And it fluctuates. It's based on a a lot of different things. But see, you need to take the Word of God. This is the reason that that teaching on spirit, soul, and body, finding out who I was in Christ, totally changed my life. You know, I don't consider myself to be a kid that was abused and had bad things happen to me, but just like anybody else, I had things happen that affected me. And, you know, I was just talking about this recently, that my mother, I guess in jest, she was a school teacher. And when you took those aptitude tests, you know, my brother, he scored 164 on his IQ test, which is higher IQ than Einstein. And uh, he's just brilliant. 
and he's a genius. Well, somehow in conversation this came up. I said, well, so what was my IQ? And she says, 88. She says, you're a borderline idiot. And did you know, I just mentioned this to my mother a couple of years ago, and she says, oh, that was never true. And I said, yes, it was. You told me. And she says, well, I must have been kidding. I've grown up my whole life thinking I was an idiot, borderline idiot. It didn't really bother me. It's like I was a functional idiot. Amen. So it didn't bother me. But you know what? I had this image on the inside. But when I got turned on to the Lord and God showed me who I was in Christ, I all of a sudden changed that image. I used to feel inferior and unable to do all kinds of things. I was very intimidated and insecure. And when I got turned on to the Lord and found out who I was in Christ, it changed the way I saw myself. My brother was a mechanic. When he was 14, he took a car apart down to the last bolt and nut just to see if he could put it back together. And he did, and it ran. And so my, you know, there was a sibling rivalry and my brother was a mechanic and he tried to teach me to be a mechanic and I wasn't going to be a mechanic because my brother was. So I went the other direction. I've never known a thing about mechanics. But you know what? When I got turned on to the Lord, I started, I would pray over things and fix them. (laughs) And God would show me how to do it. I remember that we had a little uh, wooden thing that you pick up. It was engraved with grapes and things like this on it. And you picked it up. It was a, a music box that it would automatically play. Well, it wouldn't play. And I just started praying over that thing. God, I know that the spirit on the inside of me is sharp enough to tell me how to fix this thing. And I took it apart and prayed over it and began to fix it. I began to start doing things. And you know what? I've changed the image on the inside. So that now you could take me and put me into any situation. You could, you could put me to work at McDonald's flipping burgers. And you know what? I'd own that thing soon. I'd become the manager and I'd own the thing. I'd prosper. It doesn't matter what situation. You can put me into any situation. And I firmly believe that because of the favor of God on my life, I would prosper. I would succeed. I would rise to the top. I have totally changed the image that I had on the inside by the word of God. And it's amazing how many people don't do that. They can quote you a scripture that says that we overcome through the blood of the Lamb, but they haven't seen it. They haven't taken the word and changed the way they see things. This is what I'm trying to get across. That if you want to take the limits off of God, you're not going to have to just grab pieces of information, but you're going to have to get it into your deep thought. You're going to have to spend time meditating and letting the word Form a picture on the inside of you of who you are and what you can do. And most of us have a distorted picture because somebody said you had an IQ of 88, you borderline moron. (laughs) And you've accepted something like that. And you know what? It's formed an image on the inside of you and you have a ceiling and you wonder why you get promotions and you just can't seem to take advantage of it. It seems like there's this glass ceiling and regardless what happens, you only go so far and then something bad happens. That's because that's the way you see yourself. You'll never go above the way you see yourself. You'll never prosper above that. Some of you have been raised because you were poor, because of color of your skin or something. You've been told you couldn't do this or this couldn't happen. You've looked at yourself as a second class citizen and it doesn't matter what your IQ is, what your aptitude is, what opportunity is given to you. You're going to fail because you see yourself as a failure. 
Amen or oh me. And you know what? Nobody else can make you see yourself a certain way. They can say things and if you let them, those words can affect you. But you can sit there and choose to see yourself the way God sees you. But it takes effort and you have to understand what you're doing and you have to recognize some of you are praying for victory and success, but you see yourself losing. And you wonder, why is it so hard? Because you are trying to be something that you don't see yourself being. You've got to see it on the inside before you see it on the outside. You've got to conceive it. And you, you've got to use your imagination. So, to take the limits off of God, you need to take the Word of God. And whatever it is that God has spoken to you, whatever you believe that God has told you to do, and get a sanctified imagination. An imagination that's influenced by what you're reading in the Word of God and what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And you need to take the Word of God and meditate on it until you can see what God is telling you to do. And if you can ever see it, it'll happen. You know, Jim was talking to me about some things today and said, well, next year let's do this. And I said, well, that sounds good. Well... But you know what? I can't see myself doing some of those things that he suggested. And I said, right now, I'll have to say no. I said, I'll pray about it and maybe later we'll do it. But I just can't. I've, I've developed myself in a way that I can't do anything that I can't see in my imagination and see it working out and figuring out how it all works. You know, when I built a deck on our house, I sat out there for days, weeks on a bucket just looking at where that deck was going. And I drew pictures. And I, I just saw that deck. I imagined all kinds of things. I saw it. I've been doing a lot of woodwork over the holidays with a lathe and building things. And I'll sit there and I'll look at a piece of wood and try and see what I'm going to do. I've got to see it. I wanted to make a vase, so I brought a vase that I bought for Jamie out and I set it there so that I could see it. And you know what? I took what I saw there and transferred it onto that lathe and made that, that vase. You've got to see something before you can fulfill it. And we understand that in the natural realm and we use this, but when it comes to spiritual things, somehow or another we just throw a prayer out there and wish and hope and pray and don't understand that it's the same thing. If you don't have a blueprint on the inside, if you can't see it, you can't build it. You can't see it come to pass. Some of you are praying out of desperation that your marriage would be healed, but you've never seen your marriage healed. You don't see your mate being the person you're praying for them to be. You're asking God to do it, but you've never seen them through faith being that person. And you'll never see it on the outside if you don't see it on the inside. Some of you have never seen yourself heal. When you think, you, you, you imagine your funeral. You've already planned what songs they're going to sing. You've already thought about all of these things. That's what you see. That's the picture that you've got. You remember dear old Aunt Susie who had the same thing and the pain that she went through and how terrible it was. And that's what you see. And yet you're wanting to experience something different than what you're seeing. I'm telling you, if you want to change anything, change the way you see it on the inside by the Word of God and then it will come to pass 
as you think in your heart, Proverbs 23, 7, that's the way it's going to be. Some of you think, well, I don't believe that. It's working for you. You may not understand it, but you know what? You are, right this moment, exactly the way you see yourself being. The only exception to that would be that sometimes things take a period of time and you might be in progress and you haven't arrived, but you've left. But unless you are in process and moving towards it, you are the way that you have thought in your heart. There's no exceptions to that. And going back to the beginning of this teaching... The Lord spoke to me January the 31st, 2002 that I was limiting Him by the way I thought and most of it was the way I saw myself. I couldn't see myself being really a leader in the body of Christ. I couldn't see myself impacting people. I couldn't see myself doing these things. I wouldn't let myself see those things because in the past it hadn't been time There was dangers associated with it that I didn't want to have to deal with. It was lazy. It was easy to stay where I was. I didn't have to exert myself. All of these different reasons. But you know, the main thing was, I changed the way that I saw myself. I changed the way that I saw God using me. And when I started changing all of those things, everything in the physical began to change. You know, David and Gail Hardesty here. One of the things that we needed, Jamie, at, Jamie was running the ministry and she did a great job and we got on track and were actually ahead and not behind under Jamie's leadership. So she did a good job. But Jamie was just maxed out. He was taking everything we had. She wouldn't travel with me because she had to spend all of her time at the office. And Jamie and I had for a year been saying... We need somebody to help us. Where do you find somebody who will let you give away millions of tapes? I'd had three managers and wound up firing them all because they disagreed with my philosophy. They couldn't agree with the way I was doing things. And Jamie and I needed help, but where do you get it? We had had that conversation a dozen times. I said, I'm going to change the way I see myself. And I started speaking. And did you know with... Within a week, I called David to cancel a conference call that we had for our board meeting. And David said, I'm glad you called. Gail and I have been talking. And the Lord told us we're supposed to move out there and take your ministry to the next level. He's been trained by Sears for 37 years, managing millions and millions and millions of dollars. Under his leadership, we've come from 33 employees to 200 employees in four, five years. You know what? That was essential. But it didn't happen until I changed the way I thought. I'd been trying to go on Daystar Television Network. I knew Marcus and Joni Lamb. I'd been on their program at least a dozen times. They were friends of mine. And yet they wouldn't let us on Daystar. We tried to go on and they would quote us a rate card that was higher than their normal rate card. It was like they didn't want us on. And I never pushed it. I never said anything about it. I changed the way I was thinking and I started saying, God, I will be the person you want me to be. I will do what you've called me to do. And I started seeing myself doing it. And within one week, I got a letter from Marcus Lamb and he said, why aren't you on Daystar? (laughs) He says, how did we miss this? He says, forget the money. He says, we will work it out. You start on Daystar within the next week. And I mean, 
He gave us a great rate, a great introductory rate, and allowed us to get on. And everything changed. When I changed the way I was thinking on the inside, people started coming. God started adding people to us. Things started growing. People started giving, favors started opening up. There are some of you that are sitting here cursing all of these things. People don't treat me right. How dare this person do this? And you wonder why everything seems to be going wrong and you blame it on things out there. But you know, it really comes back to the way you see yourself on the inside. Nobody can condemn you without your consent and cooperation. Nobody can belittle you and make you feel insignificant without your cooperation. Nobody can stop you from doing what God wants you to do without your consent and cooperation. So you've got to start using your imagination, hope, and seeing things. Hope is like the thermostat that turns on the power unit. I heard uh, Charles Capps give an illustration about an old hick that came out of the woods and went into a meeting like this and it was beginning to get hot and he just started fanning himself and an usher walked up and turned this little thing on the wall and all of a sudden he starts feeling cool air. And he thought that's the slickest thing he'd ever seen. So he went up to that usher after that meeting was over and he says, what did you do? And he says, what do you mean? He says, well, you turned that thing on the wall and cold air started blowing. And he says, well, that's a thermostat. And he says, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. He says, where can I get a thermostat? He says, you can get a thermostat in any hardware store. So this guy goes and buys a thermostat, goes back to his little shack in the woods and screws it on the wall. And when it starts getting hot, he goes over there and turns it. And no cold air blows because you know what? The thermostat doesn't cool the room. The thermostat only controls the unit that does cool the room. Hope is like that. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. If you can't hope first, you can't be healed. Before you can believe that you're healed, you got to hope that you're healed. You got to start hoping that you can be healed. You got to start taking the word and painting a picture and someday, maybe in the future, seeing yourself healed. Now that's not faith, but that's hope that controls and makes faith kick in. And many times we just try and skip that step. We want to go straight from being totally hopeless, helpless. The image on the inside is nothing but defeat. There's fear, there's sadness, there's nothing positive. And we just come and want somebody to wave their hand over us and you're going to be healed. If you get healed like that, it's going to be a miracle, not faith. There's a difference between those two. The blessings and the miracles that I was advertising earlier. If you receive it from God, you're going to first of all have to conceive hope. You're going to have to start nurturing that and spending some time. And it'll take time for you to see yourself being different. You've got to get a different image. You know, when I study the Word, this is what I do constantly. I remember when I was a kid. I remember when I was a teenager going outside and marking nine foot five on a tree because I was reading about David and Goliath and the scholars said that David uh, Goliath was somewhere around 9 foot 5 to 10 feet tall. I marked that on a tree and then I bent over because David was supposed to be 5 foot and I remember looking at that so that I could help picture 
what it was like when David fought Goliath. That's the reason that the Word comes alive to me. That's the reason I get things out of the Word that other people don't because I don't just read the Word. I take it and I, I meditate on it until I can see it, till I can picture it. When we took a tour of Israel, it was a hot day and they just stopped along the side of the road and they said, this is the Valley of Elah. This is where David fought Goliath. Does anybody want to get out? Nobody else wanted to get out. I got out. I walked down to the brook, a dry stream, and got five little stones. And I stood there seeing the Philistines on the mountains round about and imagining what it was like for David to fight Goliath. There was 40-something people on the bus. Nobody else thought it was important. Man, I was going to get everything I could. This is why people, when they go to the, to the Holy Land and all of a sudden they see these places, they come back and they say, man, the Bible's just alive and they can't understand. They think there's an anointing on Israel. I'm more anointed than Israel is. God lives on the inside of me. There isn't any special anointing on Israel. You know what it is? You go over there and you see things that you had read about, but it was fuzzy because you hadn't meditated to the point that you got a clear image. And all of a sudden now you can go over there and you can see this place and it makes the Bible come alive and you start understanding. You start getting the deep thought. Things start making more sense to you. You get more revelation. It has more impact on you because your imagination is now involved. Most of us threw our imagination away when we quit being a kid. We thought it's foolish. Now we've got to deal in reality. I guarantee you, a sanctified, God-inspired imagination is reality. This is how you get things done. So I want to encourage you. Talking about taking the limits off of God, you're going to have to see yourself differently. You're going to have to see God differently. You're going to have to see what you can do through the power of God differently. You're going to have to take the Word of God and see things coming to pass. You know, when I started on television, I said, God, what kind of program do you want me to have? And I knew what I didn't want to have. I didn't want to be a preacher in a three-piece suit, sweating and saying, glory to God, and being like everybody else. I didn't want to be that, but what did I want to be? And you know what? I sat down and I prayed and I drew out our set. I, I wanted it to look like this and it, it, there were some things different, but basically I came up with that design. I knew I didn't want to be frothing at the mouth and running and screaming. I wanted to talk to people just like I'm sitting down one-on-one and talking. And you know what? I saw all of this. I saw it. I saw our TV set. I saw what it was going to be like. It took me a week or two just sitting there, but I saw it. And you know what? It's been a blessing. Great things have been happening through it. Every time God tells me to do something, this is the process I go through. I take this and I make sure that it's God. And then if it's God, I'll sit down and I'll just start meditating until I see what God wants me to do. I'm telling you, there's some people that the reason their church doesn't grow is because they've never seen themselves pastoring a thousand people. They see themselves pastoring a hundred people and that's what they're going to be. The reason some of your businesses hadn't grown is because you've never seen yourself. You never sat down and thought about what would you do if you had a million dollars a month income? What would that be like? You've never allowed your imagination to go there. 
Your imagination is where you conceive things. You can't do it if you can't conceive it. It's like being underground in a tunnel. You can't just walk through rock or through dirt. You've got to dig out a place and hollow it out. And then after you empty it, you can walk into that place. You've got to go there in your mind first. You've got to go there in your imagination, in your heart. You've got to see this. And only after you've been there in your heart can you get there in your physical body. If you don't have a vivid imagination that is inspired by God. You can have a negative imagination that you have to cast down those thoughts where you see yourself dying and failing. But I'm talking about a vivid, godly imagination. If you don't have that, you're going to limit what God can do. That's how you conceive. That's how you make things happen. I don't know if that's helped you or not, but this has changed my life. It's literally changed my life. And you know what? I don't just read the Bible, but I spend time after God shows me things. I'll spend time closing my Bible and just seeing those things. That's part of studying the Word. The Lord says, consider my meditation. That's another word for imagination. When you're meditating, you're imagining something. You need to imagine stuff. Right now, I'm imagining ourselves having five times as much response and income and, and different things than what we've got. And I'm imagining this. And some people think that's wasted time, but it's not. I've got to go there in my heart before I go there in my body. This will help you. These things that we've talked about, if you could take all of these things and combine them, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, but if you could take the things that we've talked about during this meeting and meditate on them, that's the reason that I really encourage you to get the CDs and the DVDs because you need to go back over this. You need to take this and spend so much time thinking on it until it paints a picture, until you can see yourself differently. And if you're one of those that God was speaking to about coming to Bible college, don't just sit there and make a decision and then do nothing but see all of the problems and think about everything that could go wrong and, oh, I've got to move. and what am I? You know what? That's your imagination and uh, it's going to hinder you. You've got to see the positive side. See yourself succeeding. See yourself going out there and, man, God's going to open up doors. Miracles are going to happen. It's going to be miraculous how God supplies my needs. Who knows what's going to come out of this? Man, what could God be doing? I could be on the other side of the world ministering and seeing people's lives change. You need to start imagining things like that. And some people won't let themselves do it. Think, oh, I I shouldn't do that. You imagine stuff all of the time. But it's just usually negative. We need to turn it around and imagine positive things. And if you'll do that, I guarantee you, it'll take the limits off of God. You'll find that when you start using your imagination in a positive, constructive way, for me, it's just like a motor starts running or something on the inside. Once I start seeing something, I tell you what, it gets me energized. Everything in my life starts working to bring those things to come to pass. You know, I remember a time that Jamie and I were going to go buy a car. And we didn't really have the money for a car, but we were getting close to where we needed one. But at the moment, it was just a kind of something we were thinking about. And we decided, we made the mistake of thinking, we'll just go down and test drive a car. 
And we went down there with no pressure, no desire, no strong compelling or anything. We went down rational. And that salesman says, here, sit in the car. Feel this. Let's go for a drive. Doesn't this feel good? Don't you look nice in this? And you know, things that are unimportant, they didn't talk about the motor. They didn't talk about the warranty. They didn't talk about the practical stuff. They wanted you to feel it. And you know what? After an hour or so of being down there and driving a couple of cars, all of a sudden, Jamie and I no longer was it just something for off in the future. We needed it right now. Right now, man, it was important. How could we do it? And I mean, every wheel in our brain was focusing on how could we pull this money together? How could we do this? How could we get this car? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You know why they do that? They want you to get into that car so that you can see that car, so that it places an image, so that you have the smell of that car and you want that new car smell. You could go buy it in a can for a dollar and spray it in there, but they want you to get this. You want to smell that new car and what it is, they're dealing with your imagination. Once you see yourself in that new car, you'll never be content to go back to that old car. And it's the same thing. Once you see yourself, the man or the woman that God wants you to be, you'll never be content to let sickness dominate you again, to be a second-class citizen, to do all of these other things. You've got to see yourself like God sees you. Man, that's powerful. That is powerful. Father, I just thank you for the Word. I thank you for these truths. I'm asking you, Father, that the Holy Spirit would take these things that we've talked about and inspire a sanctified, holy imagination on the inside of every one of us, that our hope would just explode. That, Father, we would allow ourselves to start hoping and dreaming big. That we would take the limits off. That we would quit constraining, restricting our dreams to only what we can do in ourselves. And that, Father, we'd start dreaming big, seeing you, moving in our life. Father, for those that have had a negative imagination, their hope is not hope, it's fear. They've been cursed since they were a child. They've been told they couldn't do this. They've got past experience of previous marriages, previous bankruptcies, previous sicknesses, people dying, losing people negative experiences that have painted a negative image on the inside of us. Father, I pray for those people right now. And Father, they would just take hold of the word that I've given and that they would recognize they can change that image. That they don't have to let these negative things in the past determine their future. Thank you, Jesus.